Knock, knock, guess who is knocking at your door? That's right, you know it's the morning for sure. Might be a geoff, it could be, maybe it's Mitt Romney. Hey folks, this week in Mormons here, Jeff in the house, that's me. I'm with Devin. What's up, Devin? Uh, it's Monday night. It's family home evening time, and uh, I'm recording a podcast with you. I'm thrilled. Oh my gosh. I'm See, I can get away with it because I'm East Coast, so like I'm post all of that at this point, that's but right. I'm probably, I'm preventing you from advancing spiritually. I'm sorry. No, I, it's, it's okay. Okay. I okay. I don't want to cause problems. Folks, thank you for taking the time to tune in. It's nice to have you with us this week and be back in the saddle. We had some some sisters last week, and we always love their show. Um, and now here we are, you know, winding down January. This week is a big week. We don't have any big celebration planned per se, but this is officially the 10th anniversary of the podcast. This week, Devin. And Devin, congratulations, Devin. You're in the hot seat. Well, Very it's well. an honor to be here. Uh, I'm thrilled to celebrate it with you. I've done... Uh, I've been your co-host now, off and on for what six months, five months. Anyway, no, no, but no, I love we're, it. we're over a year now on this. Is month. it over a year? I oh, love yeah. doing it. I oh, love yeah. doing it. Um, uh, it, it. I have a lot of fun doing. Well, the we're twin we're glad to have you here uh, once again. I want to thank you for your contribution to our little Christmas stories episode we did about a month ago. I thought that turned out quite well. It was that very was nice good. to hear everybody's stuff. So that was. I, I hope I didn't detract too much from the spirit of it. I don't see how you would do that. You are one of the thoughtful ones. <laughs> Devin. Um, anyway, since we last spoke, you had you've been sunsetting your long running podcast. So yes, what's going on now? Um, that was a, a really difficult, challenging experience. In fact, if you listen to the uh, last episode, which I recorded months ago, months and months ago, yeah. uh, I kind of lose it a little bit as I pondered. Uh, the end of the show, uh, but I had uh, Nick Kristoff, New York Times uh, oh, uh, columnist and uh, best-selling author, on the show to talk about social issues for the last time, and it was—I thought it was a great episode. We talked about a bunch of cool stuff, including uh, one of my favorite Nick Kristoff themes, which is sort of calling liberals on their crap, <laughs> even though he and I both are liberals. Well, it's like uh, David Brooks calling conservatives on their crap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Time, right? Sometimes so. you got to do that. So uh, I thought it was a great, great episode. We So we've kind of uh, put that to bed. I'm continuing to write for Forbes, uh, so that keeps me busy. But uh, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, what the future holds and still working through that. Okay. Well, we hope good things. Oh, Don't go you. back to investment banking, man. Don't do it. It won't happen. Okay. Do. You should work that Bill Gates connection and move to Seattle. You could work at the yeah. Gates Foundation. Boy, I would love to work for the Gates Foundation. Oh, as would I. The yeah. benefits are insane. Are they? Yeah. Oh. Oh yes. Oh yes. But they can hire the cream of the crop. But it's uh, you oh. get like it's like a year of paid paternity leave to say nothing of ma- of actual. Maternity I have to get leave. pregnant then. Yes, you do. We will watch the movie Junior together, <laughs> and we will celebrate how we'll get to this. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so stuff's got to get over here in D.C. I might finally be winding down my basement renovation, which has been the nightmare of the past quarter. Yeah, usually we do this uh, without the cameras on. Tonight we have the cameras on so I can see the basement remodel and appreciate how much work it is. Yeah, and this isn't even the the main part. Yeah, this has just been... Yeah, it's a mess. My it's a kids, lot of work. My, my kids have not had a basement to play in for a year ever since this all got going. Anyways, life is chugging along though and, and things are great. I'm actually changing jobs though. So right now I'm in a lull. I'd have my last day at my job on Friday. Oh, congratulations. Start, what, what's the new job? Uh, so I've, I've been working at the State Department for a while and now I'm going to go be taking a job at USAID. So I'm excited oh. to hang out with my aid and development folks. It's going to be good coming back home. Oh I've my gosh. In the industry for like I, I think I need years. to come work for you, Jeff. Let's, let's talk about that. Okay. So it should be good. I'm, uh, I'm ex- 
Yeah, I had much earlier in my career, I did some work with USAID more on the side, like in a supporting role. So it's kind of fun to come back to somewhere where I spent the earlier days in my yeah. career. Should oh, be fun. I love the work they're doing. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Thanks to my contractor, we didn't go on any fun trip while I have a week off, you know, with nothing to do. Nope, just staying here, trying to get it done. Thanks, contractor. I won't name you on here for the sake of libel or something like that, but for goodness sakes, man. Anyway, well, everybody, it's been a very busy week in Latter-day Saint news. And I love seeing the way the news kind of curates itself during this time because Devin's been slotted here for this week, a couple of weeks or so, you know, since we scheduled you. And that's kind of how we usually do it. But in that time, I feel like so many of the stories that have popped up this week are very relevant and the type that are of interest to Mr. Devin. So I always think it's great the way this seems to pan out Uh, and all all the cool things that we can do together. I'm going to lead off this week with what is one of my more beloved stories, uh, good old Meridian Magazine, bless the Proctors, wonderful people, uh, are talking about the proposal to develop a, quote, unprecedented sculpture park to celebrate the Book of Mormon. Now, what this means, now I believe these are like proof of concept, there's smaller statues right now, and the idea is I believe to make full-size statues, sculpture parks, of uh, various scenes from the Book of Mormon. Some of them are what you would see, you know, Christ blessing the children. That's cool. Nothing wrong with that. Some of them show people looking Lamanite-y in the Book of Mormon stories song sense, uh, swinging a knife. Um, I really like the the title of Liberty one. That's when it goes full John McNaughton on me. That's yeah. the one that I'm, um, there is nothing better than American exceptionalism in a park that's a proposed park in Salt Lake City. This has Captain Moroni with the his title of Liberty, and then the title of Liberty itself dissolves and transforms into an American flag with then George Washington kneeling behind him and then other people in war. It is like you don't need the Iwo Jima Memorial when you have this. This is better. Also, George Washington is holding a baby, which... Uh, also interesting. So, I... I, I uh, this is still in proposal development stages, but I believe it is happening. I mean, they have the they have the land. I believe it's you probably know exactly where it would go better, right, Devin? Somewhere I, in Salt Lake I don't know where it's going. I I didn't pick up on that detail and map it, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is you know, art is in the eye of the beholder, right? And so this will be extraordinarily popular here in Utah. Uh, people love this. In fact, the the title of Liberty Statue, uh, one of the uh, models, versions of this that he made that was about four feet tall, um, our Rotary District purchased and gave to John Huntsman as a tribute just uh, a few months before he died. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was emotional about it and we were emotional about giving it to him. But but yeah, I think I think you look at this, uh, and it is not so much a shrine to uh, this particular piece to the Book of Mormon as is it's uh, a monument to American exceptionalism and and the Mormon cultural interpretations of doctrine that yeah. suggest that and and uh, so for some people that's incredibly moving. I think for other people it will be genuine genuinely offensive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's gonna- really. I mean, if you're a, a Nigerian refugee who's being turned away by uh, America uh, right now, how, how exceptional do you think America is? Uh, if you're a Kurd in, in Iraq uh, having been, or Syria, having been abandoned by the American soldiers who for uh, a decade had protected you, all right, how are you feeling about American exceptionalism today? So I think it's... There's an eye of the beholder thing going on there. The pieces themselves are beautiful. They're spectacular. I draw a little parallel to a, a, a le- much, uh, le- you know, not a very well-known little similar effort, but nearly a century ago, uh, a Utah created a little sculpture garden in Salt Lake. And I happened to attend church in the backyard of this sculpture garden. So I've walked through it. Uh, it's called Gil- Gilgal Gardens. And it's got some of the same kind of stuff, right? Uh, some of it you look at it and you just say, it's weird. Uh, but some people view it as a genuinely sacred space. So, you know, again, art is in the eye of the beholder. And 
it'll be wonderful, I think, for a lot of people. They'll love, love the new sculpture park. It'll be curious. And it does say in the article that they cannot disclose its location. This implies that Meridian Magazine knows where it will be, but they are prohibited from saying so, which is very interesting to me because I would assume at this point, if anything is in planning or breaking ground stages, permits must have been filed somewhere. So sleuthy Utahns, find out unless this is literally going to be in somebody's backyard and it'll be a paper entry kind of thing. Uh, Also, I've noticed the article... I joked about Iwo Jima just because it looked like Iwo Jima, but the article actually goes out of its way to say that the title of liberty is hoisted on a pole held in place by soldiers just as they did at Iwo Jima. So at first I thought it was just kind of an obvious illusion, but they're actually aping Iwo Jima, which I personally find defensive, even if the title of liberty is important and it's a good part of scripture. But now we're getting, we're going to get jingoistic here before we know it. Okay. So I don't love that one as much. But like you said, I have the beholder. And if this gets propped up, I totally would go. I'd want to check yeah. this out. Even though yeah. I think the, the best sculpture parks are like old Soviet sculpture parks. But this could be fine. If anyone ever goes I, to Budapest, Heroes Park. No, no, it's Heroes Square. What's that called? There's a park in Budapest that has a bunch of old Soviet statues. And it's worth checking out. Anyway. Uh, well, you know, this this guy's got game. He's re- actually a brilliant sculptor. Yeah, does good work. Okay, well, let's see here. Let's see if I've got anything I can bring to the table here. Let's talk a little bit about Clayton Christensen before that yeah, yeah, gets yeah. away from us. It, you know, uh, Clayton Christensen, truly, 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 one of the great uh, Mormons uh, of, you know, the last hundred years, just a, an incredible human being. Um, I think he served as an Area 70, uh, but he was, of course, you know, just to remind you, he was a BY or a Harvard professor, uh, and he is the author of a book that uh, I didn't like, didn't much care for, but that is absolutely one of the you know bibles of business these days, called the Innovator's Dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I admired Clayton, despite the fact that I thought that book <laughs> didn't bring much to the table, and everybody, I mean. Everyone in the world is smarter than I am, and they all agree that book is, you know, like all that in a bag of chips. I didn't think so. But he wrote a book that I thought was profound um, just three or four years ago called How Will You Measure Your Life? And that is, you know, uh, that is so much more important, so much more profound, uh, and everyone should read it. But what I really admired about Clayton Christensen was when he was working full-time as a professor at Harvard and doing, you know, consulting and all this stuff on the side, clearly one of the busiest guys in the world, he uh, and his wife would set a goal to introduce someone to the missionaries every quarter. And, you know, you think about that. Most of us haven't done that in a long time. And he and his wife would do it every quarter. And so he had some amazing stories of how he would do that and, uh, you know, so many of us make excuses all the time about why we can't do that. And yet he was doing it all the time. It really was an inspiring example to me. I haven't emulated it. I know I should. <laughs> I have no excuse. But I admire him for his, you know, living out his testimony in that powerful way. Yeah, he'll be missed. And obviously he's been hugely influential. I mean, you know, all the way from people like, you know, Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos down through the startup community. He's been an enormous figure. I don't think they released the actual cause of death officially, but I believe he'd been struggling with cancer and other ailments for some time. Yeah, he died of leukemia. So it is officially leukemia. That's terrible. I think so, yeah. He passed away and then unrelated, of course, as a Southern Californian, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant randomly dying yesterday. That was uh, not Latter-day Saint news, but... Yeah, I tried to find his connection to Mormons, and apart from playing the Utah Jazz, I couldn't find any uh, connections. I didn't see much of anything either, but uh, that's also been uh, quite the thing to absorb, you know? It's Kobe. Mm-hmm. He was a linker. So, you know, there is a, a, a Mormon aspect there that I think bears some discussion, and I don't mean any disrespect to him to bring up, to drudge up the past, but you'll recall he was accused of rape in 2003. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What I did not appreciate until my wife pointed it out to him is is not only did he stay with his wife, then he is still with his wife. 
uh, and they they have managed to keep that marriage together now for uh, over 20 years, which is a remarkable thing, uh, even absent that kind yeah. of accusation. Yeah. And it really got me thinking about the fact that there are probably a lot of marriages that fail for lesser reasons uh, and maybe deserve a second chance. I don't know, but it, it did get me thinking about that. Undoubtedly. Uh, I had one thing that's also a little bit more Latter-day Saints related to Kobe Bryant. So I was down, I was doing some wiring in the construction area today, and one of the workers kind of just popped his head in out of nowhere and just said, man, Kobe Bryant, huh? I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I haven't talked to this guy a ton mm -hmm. in my day. And he had an interesting perspective because he said, you know, like a long time ago, I always thought that, you know, the wealthy, the powerful, the successful, he's like, basically like they would just never die. Like they didn't seem to die. They were just always around, right? But the poor people would die. The, the destitute would die. He said, but you know, he's like, I don't want to be crass, but like this shows you, no, we're all like, equal in the eyes of God. Like we can all get here and we can all leave here regardless of circumstance. Yeah. And I said, that's actually a very profound statement to make while I'm just sitting on the floor tinkering with a wall outlet. So uh, I appreciated that and a good reminder that, you know, it made me think of the temple, how if we go to the temple, we're all wearing white and anybody could be anybody, right? And I've never even yeah. thought about that. I've been in sessions before, you know, barring seeing like a Mitt Romney or a Harry Reid or somebody in the session. For the most part, you're just like, I don't know what these people do. For, yeah. for all I know, I'm sitting next to some CEO and then right next to him is, you know, a farmer, which happened. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's the beauty of the temple. So I'm hoping the rule of threes does not manifest itself at some point within the next few days because yes, that, that sometimes seems to happen, which is is no bueno. So interesting bit of news came out of BYU kind of a little late last week, right around when the sisters were recording. So I don't think it made it into their episode. Uh, BYU's ballroom dance troupe is quite renowned. Uh, it is a, it's a serious, legit operation. They, they tour the world. Uh, it is not some token program they have. BYU takes its participation in the ballroom dance community quite seriously. Um, now, the National Amateur Danceport Championships uh, have been hosted by BYU for over 20 years, usually in the Marriott Center. And that's all well and good. Uh, what's happened, though, is that the NDCA, which is the governing body for the championships, uh, has previously, of course, always defined a couple as a man and a woman in Dancing terminology, right? Because in dancing, it's very specific. You have a, a lead, you have a man who's typically a lead, and you take a different motions as the lead versus the follower. Um, those aren't supposed to be loaded terms or anything like that, but uh, you know, misogynistic or anything like that. But that's sort of how it is. Um, however, the NDCA has now changed the rules to allow a leader and a follower without regard to the sex or gender of the dancer, thus allowing same gender couples to compete. It doesn't even imply that it's like necessarily same, same sex attracted, same gender couples. It could literally be two women who just want to dance together or two men who want to dance together. Doesn't mean it has to be a quote gay thing. I hate to say it that way, but I just want to be clear about that. I think uh, the insinuation is that it would be something along those lines that those who have are uh, same sex oriented would want to compete in such a way instead of the traditional rules. So, the reason this applies to BYU is because BYU hosts this event, and in order to continue to host the event, BYU must comply with the rules of the governing body, uh, which is to allow this. Now, you'd be forgiven if you saw the headlines, and even the one at the Daily Universe says BYU allows for same-sex couples in national ballroom competition, which is true, but you could read that and think this means that BYU is going to offer up same-sex couples from its own squad in the competition. And I do not believe that will be the case. This is merely saying BYU as the host of the event will abide by the NCDA's rules and allow other competitors from other universities to be same-sex dancers if they so desire. But don't be confused and think that this means BYU is suddenly opening it up and the BYU ballroom dance troupe is going to have same-gender uh, pairs. I do not believe that will be happening. I, I could, of course, be proven wrong on that front, but I don't think that will be the case. So I think it's I a, hope you're wrong. I hope you're wrong. It's uh, an interesting uh, little development. I, th I mean, I think the bottom line is they're basically doing it because they're being forced to, because it's either yeah. comply or lose out on hosting an event you've hosted for 20 years. And so in this case, they're going to spin it how they want to spin it, but this is BYU basically just 
backing down and saying, okay, well, it's more important that we host the event than it is that we take a stand about hetero couple dancing. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's good. I mean, yeah. And BYU's ballroom dance is amazing. I saw them when I was in Ukraine many, many years ago. They were coming through the country, so we saw them perform, and it was it was incredible. They do great work, so hope that continues. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. Well, it is a fascinating, fascinating thing. And like I say, I hope BYU will allow its students to participate that way. It would, uh, it's, it's rather hollow to allow other people and not their own students to participate that way, so... But uh, in in much less interesting news, the Utah ban on conversion therapy for children took effect this week. Uh, that's gotten a little bit of uh, national press, uh, and it's directly related to the church. We can't pretend that it's not. Yeah, the the for church sure. For sure. was directly involved in crafting language that they would agree to, and in fact, at one point, when the compromise was reached, the church said they wouldn't support it, and then the governor called, and I think he convinced them to uh, to accept the language. They didn't make the change that the church had requested, which would have, in effect, gutted the ban. Um, and so the ban, I think, is meaningful uh, and church-approved, and I think that's great. Yeah, it's good to see this happening. Well said, Devin. I'm going to hit you folks with a couple of random temple newsy things, a little, uh, some midway stuff here. So first of all, Durban, South Africa, open house, uh, for the temple there, rather the open house is going on, uh, now it began on Wednesday, January 22nd. Uh, we'll have a break of course on Sunday, the 26th, but it will go through February 1st. So not the longest open house. That's reasonably brief. I think that's less than two weeks. Actually, usually open houses are at least a full two weeks. This is a week and a half pretty much. It's pretty short. Uh, I love the design of the Durban Temple. Never seen one like it. I'm sure on the inside it follows the the same general floor plan of the modest, you know, long rectangle two-story temples versus the three-story rectangular ones. Uh, but I think it looks great. And it is, of course, the second temple in South Africa following the one in Johannesburg that has been there since the 80s, um, which that's a whole other big fun bit of history when you want to talk about uh, priesthood bans based on race and things like that and how it related to getting a temple in South Africa. That's a fun bit of stuff I would encourage you to look into. But this is great. So the open house is going down and then they're going to dedicate it on February 16th across three sessions, at which point Africa will have its, South Africa will have its second temple. Africa as a whole will have its fifth temple. Uh, but as you know, if you've been following General Conference and of course our temple predictions, Many more temples are coming. There are two under construction officially, I believe Cape Verde and Ivory Coast. And then four more have been announced off the top of my head. We got Nairobi, Harare, Freetown, and I think the oh, and Lagos, the other one in Nigeria. So those have been announced, but they're not yet being constructed. But the work goes forward in Africa, my good yeah. friends. And it's going to continue going forward in Africa, which is outstanding. Uh, and other great groundbreaking news, I, I have, you know, full disclosure, I have personal things at stake here. So as a good journalist, I will disclose my ties to the Richmond, Virginia area in that I live an hour away from it. So there we go. Um, we're we know that they're going to have the dedication or the, sorry, the groundbreaking dedication for the Richmond, Virginia temple on April 11th, 2020. We saw the rendering for the temple come out last fall, which we assumed would mean the, uh, temple would go get underway here in a few months. And so that will be the case. So roughly three years from then we should see a dedication and that's awesome. Uh, kind of where I'm located down here south of D.C., I've actually been wondering, as long as there's no southbound traffic, like on a Saturday, if it'll take me the same amount of time to drive to Richmond for the temple or drive up to Maryland in D.C. when that one actually comes back online. I'm not exactly sure, but it's super awesome. It's the first temple in Virginia. Very excited about that. Congratulations. Th well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I mean, we pertain to the D.C. district no matter what I do. We're not, they're not going to carve us off and put us in the Richmond district. Uh, also, the the now christened Alabang Philippines Temple will have its groundbreaking on May 2nd. That is the one that is in the Muntin Lupa district, which is it was basically the second temple in Manila that was announced back in uh, April 2017. Um, making you know Manila one of the few places in the world with two temples, other Lima, Peru, Provo. And officially, South Jordan, Utah has two temples in it, but that one's not really advertised that way compared to the other ones. So this will be the second temple in Manila. That's underway. And coming back to Utah, the fine people of Leighton, or Leighton, 
Leeton on May 30th will receive their groundbreaking May 30th for the rather large and architecturally unadventurous Leighton, Utah Temple. Congratulations. I'm not pleased with that one the way it looks. It's perfectly fine, but it's just fine. <laughs> like the Saratoga well, Springs Temple is way more interesting looking compared to that one. So, yeah. What else? Well, Steve? speaking of temples, though, everybody's got to find the photos of the church tearing down part of the St. George Temple. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's striking. I don't think most of us appreciated that the remodel would include tearing off some of the additions that have been made to the temple over the years yeah. so they can yeah. replace the additions with better, more architecturally appropriate additions. So, well, and I didn't even know that that, and I never even knew looking at the St. George Temple, I saw this too, that it's the west side of the temple, it's basically the back of it. Had been added onto at some point. I, don't, I didn't even know this had happened. Yeah. To ha- basically, to, to accommodate a larger staircase. That that was what, what that entire structure was, if I'm not mistaken. So that's gone now. It's kind of funny because now that's gone. You see the original back of the temple. So it's got the windows and all these things that they clearly just covered up at some point in the 70s, and they remain. They've done the same thing in the Salt Lake Temple. That is, they have built on and hidden the old outside windows, and so. Uh, there are places in the temple where you don't realize you're looking at a window that has a false wall behind it, and between the wall and the window, they have lights so that it looks like you're looking at the lights outside, when in fact, you're looking at the lights inside of a wall, and then you go outside that room, and then there is a hallway, uh, and it's freaky. Is uh, that uh, Now, would those be the old windows... Um... Is that where they had that old addition where the extra ceiling rooms were on the yeah, north side? Yeah. So it's so kind of on the original wall between that and those that addition. Yeah, so the original wall uh, is in the celestial room. You can look out the window. Uh you know, it's all frosted glass. You can't really look out, but if you could look out, you would now look into a wall. Uh but they light it. I don't realize they did that in the celestial room. It's in the celestial room. Wow. Yeah, so it's uh it's kind of cool uh uh and freaky at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I did not know they did that in the celestial room. I thought, it, I guess, one thing I forget about the Salt Lake Temple when you see it from the outside is that even the celestial room is not as high up as you would think it would be. I mean, it's only on the second level, basically. So it's easy to look at it. It's this tall building to assume it's high up. So that's why, I mean, I guess yeah. thinking about those ceiling rooms and that annex, I guess that would kind of go over that. And the celestial room is on the north side of the building like that. Yeah, you're correct. Interesting. You're you're much better oriented than I. I get lost the second I walk in the door. I'm thinking about yeah how it's all laid out, and it's funny how they've done that. I mean, on the other side of that, you've got something like the uh, Logan Temple, which of course is a is literally a shell of its former self, in that the temple is a shell, and inside is just this. I mean, Devin, it basically looks like the cabinets behind you in terms of the uh, beautiful <laughs> woodwork. They yeah. they just kind of whatever. Uh, you know, it looks like a product of the 70s and they did it out of necessity for capacity reasons. But if you go to the Logan Temple, you will be shocked that there's nothing pioneerish on the inside. Um, I don't know if there are any real windows in use at all, because if you go on the outside of the temple, you can see that the old pioneer windows are painted black when you get up oh. close. Um, Interesting. And so it's a lot of, uh, but back then, I don't even think they went to the effort to put in the false windows that they do nowadays to make it yeah. still have the appearance. I think you're just in these windowless rooms that are just- doing- That is interesting. I, my parents were married in the Logan Temple, but I have never been in it. I went there only once when I was, I think way back when I was at school at the Y or something like that. I decided one day to play hooky from class. I, I was taking an econ course at the Salt Lake Annex and I decided to blow it off and just drive to Logan and go to the temple instead. Just Good choice. I, I hadn't been there, Good so choice. I thought it was fun. Uh, so that was cool. Uh, and another temple with false windows. I wonder which other ones do this. I'd love to hear from our listeners, by the way. You know our email address, contact at thisweekinmormons.com or comment on the Facebook post for this. Um, the Manhattan Temple does the false window thing as well. I know that one for sure, because when they built that to um, remove it from all the sound out in a very busy part of Manhattan, they effectively built a building within a building. And so when you're in the rooms there and you see these windows, it's the same thing. They just have fake lights behind them that I assume they even adjust depending on the time of day. (laughs) Um, And the effect works really, really well because you compare that to like the second level of that building. Uh, where there's the meeting house and I've been there just for like meetings and you can hear all the traffic going on outside past the Lincoln Center. But when you're up in the temple, it's pretty quiet. So I'd be very curious which other temples are actually employing the false windows. There can't be that many of them, you know, by just how they are. Yeah. 
That is a great, great question to research. So you want, real quick, you did mention the Salt Lake Temple. We know it's closed right now mm-hmm. uh, for a four-year renovation. Uh, pretty cool. Some photos got out last week here showing what's just, just some, in, uh, it's like four interior shots of the temple, which is now no longer dedicated, um, under construction. And what it really means is you just see some shots of parts of the temple with just a bunch of crates and things and various pieces of furniture wrapped up caringly to take care of them. You see the assembly hall upstairs. Uh, looking very nicely lit, actually, with the window and all sorts of just materials around, and it's just it's just interesting to see what's going on with that. But that's uh, that's on our Facebook yeah. page. You can check it out. Nothing much else to it, but it's pretty cool to see what they get. Into. I was kind of surprised the other day when I walked by the Temple Square and the that South Visitor Center. Oh, it's gone, gone. Yeah, it's, it's gone, gone. It's over. Yeah. Um, one interesting thing that you highlighted this week was Elder Stevenson uh, participated at the uh, a Martin Luther King Memorial event, and that got uh, covered uh, in a few places with Elder uh, Peter M. Johnson, who I might add. Good, good, good reminder. Good reminder. Uh, you know, it's uh, a good reminder. Uh, you know, on MLK Day, the Des News also did uh, uh, an editorial uh, that to remind everyone, let's think about who their audience is, though. Really, yeah. that's Mormons. To remind everyone to uh, be introspective about their own racism. And I thought that was really a profound reminder uh, because we all... And I mean almost all in a literal sense, but certainly virtually all of us have implicit biases that creep into our thinking. And those of us raised in the church suffer from that more uh, because the church for a hundred years didn't give blacks the priesthood, didn't let them into the temple. And we, we turned ourselves in knots trying to figure out why. Uh, yeah, as a people. Yeah. And so I think uh, that the legacy of that uh, is pretty profound, and it, it really is important for us to be introspective about how we completely try to purge our minds of that legacy bias. And and it's not just Mormons. Um, Mormons are not more racist than others, I don't think, uh, in the, the, you know, in the United States, but it we need to be less racist than everybody else. I think we've been working on that a lot. I mean, I've, I've been very amazed at the steps we've taken to partner more with the NAACP in particular in the past mm-hmm. few years. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what part of this event was was for, right? It was to yeah. be chummy with them. I mean, we, we've, we've had difficulties with the NAACP in the past, so we are really working very hard, especially at the executive level, uh, to, to work that engagement. I think it's great because it sends the messaging to the rest of the church. Like guys, let's, you know, take this seriously. And, and I think yeah. we tend to think of, you know, if it's NAACP, MLK, we think a lot about African-American issues in particular, but I hope that we can use it as a stepping stone to remember the, like you said, you know, the inherent bias, the latent racial bias that any of us might have, whether it's not towards African-Americans, but towards anyone of any, anyone yeah. who looks different from us, right? And we make yeah. assumptions about them or whatever it may be. And we've got a lot more progress to make with respect to women. Yeah. Uh, because I think there are doctrinal questions that confound the, us making progress on that, right? The, yeah. Just this month, uh, the church put out a statement in the New Era that said unequivocally, men and women are equal, but we don't support the Equal Rights Amendment. And by the way, just because they're equal doesn't mean they're the same. And so... There are confusing, confounding issues for us on gender questions. Uh, so we got a lot to sort out still. We do. I mean, I think we're working on it. You know, we're getting there. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mentioned Elder Peter M. Johnson was there, if you're familiar with him. I think I talked about him a couple weeks ago. He, he presided over our state conference a few weeks ago. And so he's a he spoke in general conference. He's the first African-American general authority. Uh, very interesting guy. But something else I noticed uh, as they published the assignments for the various members of the 70, like they do every year, you know, when they change up area presidencies and this and that. Elder Johnson, however, has been assigned to serve as the mission president in the Manchester, England mission, which I think is very interesting. Uh, I tried to reach out to some people who might know better than I could. 
what history do we have of that? It's one thing, of course, when like mission presidents after they get released become 70s or some mission presidents while serving as mission presidents have been called to the 70, you know, we hate to use it, but, you know, moving up at the same time. But how often does it happen that a, outside of, let's say, the early pioneer days of the church when things were a lot different then, how often has it been that a general authority a, who was called first as a general authority is then given an assignment to not preside over an area, not be part of the area presidency, but to be a mission president specifically? I don't have the answer. I've tried to look this up a little bit. I think there's a few examples of it. I'm extremely curious how common or not that is. I don't know of when else this might have happened, but also I feel like Elder Johnson's already become a little more prominent, so maybe we're noticing compared mm-hmm. to some, you know, for lack of a better term, just to some random 70 who we haven't heard much from yet also received the same call. So I'm just curious about that. I don't know of very often that a standing general authority is brought in to be the president of a mission, which is, and why, and if, is this because is Manchester, England failing miserably? Does it need a general authority touch? Like what's going on yeah. up there in the Midlands? I don't know. I don't know. It, it may be because he hasn't done it before. I don't know his background. Has he done it? Has he been a mission president before? I'm not sure. I should know this having been in a meeting with him, but, but, uh, uh, but even then it's not like it's it a requirement. The church wants him to have that. They might. experience before they call him to do something else. They could. They could. I don't know. But if they wanted to have that experience, why not call him as a mission? I mean, he was only called to the 70 like less than a year ago. So I don't know. Yeah. Very interesting. I don't know. So if anybody has any insights on that, drop us a line. I'd just be curious what kind of a history that practice has. I know there might not be a why, but just to know more about it would be cool just for me because I'm a nerd. So thank you in advance. I love you all. Okay, what else do you have on your mind? Me? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, Devin. The people come here for you. You don't need to. <laughs> yeah, right, right. They don't come here. Well, for let's me. jump in. Let's jump in. You, you raised a, a topic here on our little topic list that uh, really intrigued me. Uh-huh. Uh, I think you probably covered it last week, but the uh, Come Follow Me manuals had uh, an old, some would call it racist explanation for uh, about uh, or interpretation of Book of Mormon references to curse and skin and dark and all of this and uh, the church upon discovering it uh, corrected the yeah. online edition of the manual yeah. uh, immediately uh, so the the come follow me manual you have on your phone does not match the, the ones your bishop passed out uh, earlier this month uh, which has this old, again, what some would call racist explanation for uh, around the curse. And by some would call, to be clear, Elder Stevenson, an apostle, apologized for this, like made it clear yeah. this was a mistake. We don't support the teachings that somehow made it in there. I don't know how they got through, but yeah. Well, you know, I kind of know. I mean, I hate to admit it. I, I like to think of myself as the most woke Mormon alive and— Reading the original text, I was thinking, well, that looks like and sounds like what I've heard in church a hundred times, and it didn't resonate. I mean, as offensive as it is to me, it didn't strike me as being no longer valid. And so it was really pleasing to me to have the church say, yeah, "Yeah, that's no longer valid thinking. Just because a prophet said it doesn't mean we believe it. Um, So it was, you know. I think it was really a, a, a good response. But what's interesting is uh, the, the, the piece you highlighted, and I apologize for kind of stealing your thunder here, but our Spackman, thunder, Devin. We share the thunder. <laughs> well, thank you. You're, you're very generous with your thunder. The, uh, ben Spackman wrote this piece. that he, He'd gotten into an argument on Facebook. I can't imagine that would ever happen. Not to me. Uh, with some folks at the church who were essentially arguing that it was inappropriate to correct them, that they don't do anything wrong, that they seek the spirit and guidance uh, of, you know, Heavenly Father in everything they do. And then after they have sought revelation in putting together the manuals, they run them by general authorities who then approve them in the correlation process. So they are perfect. And... uh, Ben Spackman pointed out to them that uh, 
an apostle had in fact said there was an error in the process that yielded an outcome in an error in the content of the manuals that had to be corrected. And so it was an interesting take, and it really highlights the uh, attention I really feel all the time uh, between sort of uh, uh, the Orthodox Mormons that are, are uh, intent on defending the truth and other Mormons who, uh, I think of myself being more in this group, are wanting to seek, find, and discover truth uh, rather than uh, so much to defend it. And anyway, it was an interesting context for this whole thing. Was, so I appreciated you sharing this piece by Ben Spackman on his, uh, on his blog. No, I loved this piece. I thought it was extremely well thought out and reasoned and... It just speaks to our issues. Like, guys, when you have an apostle, a standing apostle saying, hey, guys, this this made it through somehow and it shouldn't have. Hopefully it was not intentionally. I, I, mean, I don't know how this gets past the the editors and the correlation people and all of those levels. I, I, or maybe it's people just thought like, you know, like you kind of referenced Devin yeah. and just said, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There's the, the dark mark stuff. Yeah, okay, sure. That's the thing. Um but like an apostle disavowed it, folks, it, and that shows us very clearly that even though I believe manuals are reviewed by the twelve and they have a role in these sorts of things, that stuff can slip through and we can make mistakes. And it is, uh, it's just, it's very silly to assume that. I mean, I love that no one could err. I love where was this quote? Um, he mentioned someone on a mission. Ah, where was that? I gotta find that one real quick. Oh, someone, so he saw an anecdote about a mission president on by common consent and said, my mission president tried to paint a picture of James E. Talmadge sitting in the upper room of the Salt Lake Temple, taking shorthand notes as he interviewed Christ himself for the story of his life. Quote, you can be assured that your discussion booklets and missionary guide have been provided in the same way. When you teach, you are using the literal words of Christ. Now, if you're quoting scripture, yes. If you are quoting a random passage from Preach My Gospel, yeah, uh, you know you're you're teaching the principles of Christ, but you're not like using. I, I don't believe that Preach My Gospel, like the sections and the way it's written out, were dictated by the Lord. I think these were just thought about with inspiration and then verified. Yeah, and so, I think even our scriptures. Uh, uh, you know, Joseph Smith described the. Uh, Book of Mormon as being the most perfect book. Uh, and it's interesting. He didn't say it was perfect. He said it was the most perfect, which implies that it isn't quite perfect. Hold on. Uh, hold and on. that's po- po- resident pedantic here. Can something, can we modify perfect? Can something be more or less perfect? Isn't it just it is or it isn't? Isn't that like when you say something is, ki- is kind of ubiquitous? You can't modify ubiquitous. I just yeah. feel like we, I don't think we can modify. I, it's perfect. not my yeah. phrasing. I know, With Devin. Him. I just feel so, like. So I, it, it is an interesting thing that we could discuss. What did he mean when he said the most correct? I think, I think he was, he said most correct. He did correct, say most correct, most actually. You know. Most correct. Yeah. So I, I misquoted him, but it, yeah. Ah, but can um, something be only kind of correct? Isn't it either correct right. or it's. Same, same problem. Oh my right? gosh. My pedantry knows no yeah. bounds. So, you know, that raises, you know, the, uh, let me just slip this in here because you raised that. But uh, 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 Robert Kirby wrote for the Tribune this week about uh, Nephi murdering Laban. Uh, And it was an interesting take. You know, uh, Robert Kirby writes for the Tribune. He's a humor columnist. So it's a funny article. Quote, unquote. uh, quote unquote. Yes. I'm not. I'm not, so I'm not in Camp Kirby, but if you are, that's, yeah, that's all right. Uh, but uh, he did make, I think, a, a valid point, uh, and it gets at this point you were making about the the scriptures to some extent, and that is the the language that describes the context for killing Laban uh, was all written by Nephi, the guy who killed Laban, uh, and so. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to treat it as if, well, of course, it's a, a lousy defense. He made up the angel after he killed. I don't want to suggest that. You know, Mormon obviously edited the book. He included it. Joseph Smith translated it. He included it. Uh, you know, the explanation is is uh, probably pretty sound. 
after those two thoughtful reviews, but nonetheless, uh, we are, you know, as we look at that story, the explanation about how it came about, where we only have Nephi's take. Of course, we know he killed him because he ended up with his clothes, he ended up with the records, uh, and he ended up with his uh, servant, so uh, it's pretty apparent um, that the story is factual from the just from the record itself, but the explanation is just Nephi explaining why he did it. Uh, I don't, you know, I say just. Anyway, interesting. No, it's all fair. I mean, you could even go back, like, this goes in all sorts of areas. Like, it makes me think of, you know, the multiple accounts of the first vision that also happened much later down the line. The very fact that Nephi, we forget that when we read the book of Nephi, this is Nephi actually writing his account roughly 20 to 30 years after it happened as well, right? He didn't just do it right then and there. So, of course... yeah. Everything gets processed through a certain lens, whether it is, yes, the ex- <laughs> I choose to trust Nephi when it comes to the, the Laban episode, yeah. but even so, he's had a lot of time to dwell upon everything that went down at the time, and yeah, you know, that's and, okay. Don't and, forget that. And maybe agonize over it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, good, interesting. good thoughts, my friend. Um, speaking of some scriptures here in the Book of Mormon. Jana Reese, it's pretty funny. She wrote an article and then wrote another article today to, in some ways, apologize for her initial article. Why, you may ask? Because Jana Reese succumbed to the temptation to have a hot headline that would drive clicks. That's what happened. Yeah. Because <laughs> the article yeah. is called A Survival... She actually, she actually renamed the article. Um, yeah, yeah. It used to say uh, an article, How to Survive the Dumpster Fire that is Come Follow Me. I believe that's what... It actually says, let's see, it's still it's a URL. Thinking Mormon's the Guide. Thinking Mormon's Survival Guide to this year's Dumpster Fire of a Curriculum. That is what it used to be called. Now it just says, A Survival Guide to the 2020 Book of Mormon Come Follow Me Curriculum. Uh, Jana feels like she was being a bit too incendiary, I think. You know, the first thing I thought... I Sorry to interrupt, but the first thing I thought saw when I saw the headline is I thought, Oh no, Jeff's not going to like that. Jan has always got something to complain about. She's a very bright person that does interesting research. Then at the same time, uh, you know, 45% of her articles are just like aimless rants about something that bothered her at church. Or she publishes someone else's rant. I don't know. Whatever. So, um, yes, that headline, you're like, okay, well, good. Uh, But her main point is that Come Follow Me doesn't cut it. She also references the whole thing we just talked about with uh, the Come Follow Me issues and mm-hmm, the racist right. ideology. That's all, what motivated the headline. That motivated everything. But uh, basically she's she's upset that, like with some others on Twitter, that people are unwilling to destroy the printed ones. The church is not recalling the printed manuals and burning them. There might be something to be said for that. I think the church is just banking on the fact that very few people are looking at the printed manuals and that's just going to be life, right? So she says, let's just burn down the entire Come Follow Me curriculum and start from scratch. Um, arguing that, you know, that basically come follow me seems to be just weekly self-congratulations. There's nothing challenging. It's mostly just kind of, I think she describes it elsewhere as trying to sell us on something we already bought more or less. Um, I, I could get some of this and she spends the rest of the article actually suggesting some worthwhile, uh, study supplements. That, I think that's a perfectly good thing to include. So, and we'll get to those, but, um, I don't know. I guess I could see this. I've still had mixed feelings about Come Follow Me, and I say that recognizing that I haven't been perfect in following it or implementing it with my family. So I I, I mean, I wonder if that makes me allowed to comment on it when I know if I've you know tested it completely. But I think the way I do look at the way the curriculum has been structured from what I've read, because we got rid of gospel doctrine and we got rid of gospel principles, you know, these sort of entry-level courses. Mm. Now all we have is Come Follow Me. And if you were to look at the two of them at different levels— or let's say numbers. Let's say gospel principles was a zero and and gospel doctrine was a one, right? I don't think this was an effort that brought them into the middle, like to put us at 0.5 or heck, let's just say one to 10, right? zero to 10, right? So we're not at five anymore. I feel like it's more that what was gospel doctrine has been watered down a bit. So we're more at like a three and a half. So we brought up the gospel principles discussion, but I do worry that we have brought down some of the other stuff in our effort to focus on the simple truths of the gospel, which matter yeah. quite a bit. And the, and that is super important. It really is. Um, but I get where Janet, I don't necessarily agree with the way Janet decided to go about phrasing yeah, her remarks, I, I, but I get where she's going with this. Yeah. 
I think the new curriculum, I may like it a little more than you do, and certainly more than Jana does, but I think it's more of a start where you are curriculum, right? Yeah. It's intended to really personalize our study of the scriptures, which I think is good, but I completely share Jana's perception of our traditional Sunday school structure, and that is perpetuated by some teachers still, right? That old pattern, and the old pattern, she described it, and I thought, boy, she just nailed it, but the pattern is, we have the truth, and only we have all the truth, Uh, and then everyone else, we feel sorry for them because they don't have all the truth, uh, and they're missing out, and of course, then we need to find ways to be more obedient, Uh, and and that formula was pervasive, it, not universal, but it was pervasive in the approach to Sunday school. And I think the new curriculum frees us from that more than uh, Jana gives us credit for. I think that's. I think that's it's more fair. of a start where you are. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. Um, I, I do agree with some of the things that she says. Where uh, oh, she she described it as like insular and it can be shallow and, and some things along those lines. I, I'm not totally on board with that but i do agree that we do do some of the sort of you know us versus them formulations we still kind of lean on that she says like quote uh, it's more committed to advertising the correctness of the institution of the church than it does or it is in uncovering the actual meanings of the scriptures that's an interesting way to look at it um i think i think it's important to remember that Curriculum is developed for a very broad audience, and it's going to depend a lot on your teacher and on the people in your ward. And that has to be that way, you know? So we can't have every single class be some sort of really, really big deep dive, like it says, the meanings of the scriptures. I think that's important to study, but how how academic, how deep do you want to go picking apart verse by verse for the actual, the meanings and what this means from the original Greek translation and all these things that are of value and I think very interesting, but it might be unreasonable to expect that in this such a broad of a setting as Sunday school during a weekly church meeting. So uh, I, I do hope that people will uh, use the curriculum uh, to really discover the, the scriptures for themselves. And that for sure, for classrooms sure. will uh, give people the opportunity to explore the meaning of the scriptures for themselves in their own lives. Uh, because it, the intellectual side, which I value, isn't really that important. The, the scriptures are in, their only real value is the extent to which we, uh, you know, internalize them. And so I hope this, the new Come Follow Me uh, helps people to internalize and really think about the scriptures and what they mean uh, and not getting too caught up in the intellectual. Amen to that. Um, you know, Jana did give, you mentioned, she made a list of some things that are uh, resources. Let me just, may I just tick these off? Sure, quickly? yeah, yeah, tell she, she mentioned a book that I recently bought and started reading. I can't tell you how good it is because I've just started reading it, but it's really appealing to me as a liberal Mormon. It's written by crazy liberal social justice warriors, and, and they've just written this exegesis, this take on the Book of Mormon they call the Book of Mormon for the least of these. And it's sort of looking at the Book of Mormon through that lens, which I, I'm really excited about. Um Another uh, book she talked about is uh, a book called uh, The Book of Mormon Made Harder, uh, which is uh, kind of an interesting uh, reversal of that concept of making things easier. The BYU Maxwell Institute. <laughs> President Nelson written, must love that one. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, BYU's Maxwell Institute has a 10 volume series that has just come out or is just coming out. There we go about the Book of Mormon. Uh, so that should be really great for those of us who like getting more. And then she belatedly forgot, you know, she forgot and reminded herself and reminded us about a, a, an older book, 2010 book called Understanding the Book of Mormon. So those are four uh, resources that we can consider as we think about uh, studying the Book of Mormon this year. Well, there we go. We'll remember those. Uh, I've got a f- kind of a funny mention here. It's important to remember that apostles are like ambassadors in many ways, you know, and the church just, we care first and foremost about the church functioning. I think especially those of us in the West want the church to be some sort of vehicle for democratic regime change and things like that around the world. You know, we want the church to stand up against 
against what for Americans are First Amendment rights, even if such rights might not even exist in other countries. Um, and we try to balance that whole issue between, you know, the Articles of Faith, where we support the government we're in, as well as like standing up for actual personal freedoms and, and liberties and things like that. In saying that, I want to mention the wonderful man known as Rodrigo Duterte, the Philippines' delightful president slash murderer. So, it's <laughs> um, the perfect introduction. Uh, so, really, what this was is, of course, they had the volcanic eruption that's been going on in the Philippines, and the churches stepped up as we often like to do and engaged in charitable work and helped to get uh, materials and funds and things where they need to be, which is great. And we used that opportunity to send Elder Cook to meet with President Duterte, uh, give him some of his family history, the, the usual process we seem to do with leaders when we meet them. You know, and I don't even imagine it was a particularly long meeting. Um, I would just say it's it's very easy to jump on this and be like, dude, like, what are we doing with Duterte? And Duterte has his supporters, for sure. That's fine. But it's easy to say, like, why are we legitimizing a regime that engages in some questionable activities? And that depends on one's point of view. But it's important to remember the church isn't in the business of legitimizing political regimes uh, one way or another, especially somewhere like the Philippines. We're not going to do ourselves any favors if we are if we're in the sights of Filipino leaders in a country where we have a lot of members and a number of temples. I mean, we don't want to be kicked out of anywhere, but the Philippines would be a very bad place for us. Yeah, to nearly a million Mormons to hit the skids. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the same thing goes with you know the church. I don't think has appreciated everything that's gone down in Russia with missionaries over the past few years. At the same time, you're not going to find many public statements from the church saying, we condemn Russia for this behavior. Right. No, it's, it's never been the church's style. Uh, and, you know, my favorite bad example of this is uh, the church excommunicated some uh, uh, dudes in uh, um in Germany during World War II, who were working with the underground to fight the Nazis, yeah, and uh, they excommunicated them, and uh, they were only they had their membership posthumously restored in the nineties. Uh, but you know those it, that epitomizes the dilemma of the church operating in the real world. Uh, yeah, I don't know, and the, and the way these all of our beliefs interact. It's not you know, clear cut. It's tough because we're trying to build God's kingdom while having to work around the the fallible and sometimes completely wrong rules of man. But yeah, I, I don't know how you reconcile the article of faith mandate that we support, you know, our leadership and where we are and this and that at the same time, not feeling like it's weird to agitate uh, for change in areas like where, I mean, just look at the United States, for example. I mean, obviously the church has its own issues with race in the past, but I mean, <laughs> like, how would it have been back when, you know, if you were fighting against slavery where it was legal, for example? Like, what were you? And that was an issue, of course, even in the early days of the church. I mean, a lot of the people in Missouri took issue because uh, most of the members of the church coming into Missouri were northerners who were against slavery. And, of course, Missouri was a uh, was a hot area for that sort of issue, you know, being a union state that allowed slavery. So, yeah, fun times all around. Just the church just wants to be the church and like spread the gospel, folks. Even if the other stuff isn't what it should be, we're just trying to do our best. Yeah. Um, you know, in this theme of uh, trying to understand the Book of Mormon's issues around race, uh, uh, one of my friends actually wrote a piece for the Trib Salt Lake Tribune this week, Holly Richardson. Uh, she's a former uh, Utah legislator. She's working on a PhD. She's brilliant, uh, but she's a regular columnist for the Trib as well. Among all, she's a she's a mother to twenty five children. I kid you not, twenty five children. Stop she's it. just an amazing human Stop. being, truly. Uh, but she has also adopted a number of kids from all around the world. So she has a whole, uh, you know, to the extent that we believe in such things, uh, race as race, she has a racial potpourri of children. Uh, and so she she thinks deeply about those things. And she, she wrote about uh, this idea that the curse was, that is referred to in the Book of Mormon was never uh, a curse of the skin color of the, uh, of the Lamanites, uh, but instead 
may have referred to their clothing, which were skins. Uh-oh. Uh, and there is a really good uh, e- evidence of that, uh, that at one point the Nephites uh, send a spy who is an old Lamanite uh, in to go uh, spy on the Lamanites. And uh, and what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, I you know I think you know there I, I probably I think I got that wrong anyway. The spy, but the bottom line is he was not found out because of his skin, uh, and he would have been found out if the skin color was different. So, in any case, I, I think the uh, I think re envisioning the curse to have been something other than skin color it would really be good for us. And I think there is room for us to re-envision that uh, and yeah. just totally think about it in a different way. Like admittedly, so we, we read through the old, you know, the classic like illustrated Book of Mormon story, you know, the one, they do it for all, all four of the main standard works. You know, the church puts out the one with all the, all the, the drawings, the cartoon versions, things like that. But the book, not the living scriptures, which are also great. But um I admit, like, I feel sometimes weird reading it with my kids because there's all these chapters that show the Lamanites being these bad savages against the Nephites, and they are clearly Amerindian in appearance, which is something that we've uh, sort of still support or what have you. But I, I admit, like, sometimes I, I look at it and I'm like, 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 what am I telling my kids right now? Like, they're going to get it ingrained in their heads that, like, the brown people are always causing trouble for the lighter skinned ones. Like, I, I worry about that. I genuinely do. Yeah, I mean, I read yeah. them when I was a kid and I think I turned out fine, but I don't know. I just, I don't know if we're just so woke nowadays that we think about these things and, and it should be okay. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know what else you would do. Like we know that there's some element of that. So how do you depict that visually in a way that's not offensive per se? Or at least yeah, I think it's, I think there's really a good argument for us to start uh, drawing everyone in the Book of Mormon context in the same complexion. They could at the very least draw also draw the Nephites so they don't look like they just, you know, you know, left the local needers. <laughs> yeah. Like, like some of these, I'm like, guys, I understand that like officially, like even people of Arab or Middle Eastern descent are Caucasian, technically speaking, but like they didn't look like that. Like I'm pretty sure Ammon... Didn't look like just that dude you saw over at Jack in the Box earlier in the week who just like, yeah. they're not just a bunch of like yeah. pasty white people. Uh, we can, yeah. I talked about earlier, you know, we talked about finding the middle ground between the two courses. Let's find the middle ground between the racial depictions. <laughs> yeah. Let's just use one middle complexion. Let's not let the Nephites be so white and the Lamanites. Let's, let's try to find something better. So yeah. Yeah. anyway, good, good point. Well, um, I think we're going to wrap it up, Devin, unless you have anything else you want to hit on big time. Before we go, oh, let's let's just take one minute. Uh, please forgive me, but I missed the please. week when we got to talk about the hundred billion dollars, which uh, old news. you know, it's, I know it's old news, but you know what did come out this week uh, is uh, you know the Standard Examiner got a tax expert in to evaluate this, and I've read other pieces as well. I think it is clear that there's almost no chance that the IRS will conclude uh, based on the representations of the brothers that that uh that the church misbehaved Devin, get Um, on board with the intrigue man come on yeah i think the money is safe now that said i i do think it is silly that some people out of the church think that the church is bad because they have a hundred billion dollars and some people in the church think the church just got more true because the church has a hundred billion dollars. I think both of those are really simple. Let's views. find the middle people fifty billion dollars and leave it at that. <laughs> Once again. Anyway, that's okay. We can go now. Okay. Okay. Good deal. So, folks, uh, if you liked what you heard or want to hear more of it, go to Patreon.com/slash This Week in Mormons and pledge a buck, like per month, twelve dollars a year, dollar a month. That is less than you would spend to buy a soda from a vending machine. And it's much less than a trip to Swig or So Delicious will cost you, I assure you. And we will not expand your waistline. Only your mind. Oh, that there we go. That's a tag right there. Also, thisweekinmormons.com. Uh, send us an email, contact at thisweekinmormons.com. Your, your feedback and thoughts. We had some questions for you, our listeners. We'd love to hear from you on that. We hope you'll follow us on social media as well. Uh, Devin, do you have anything to plug at this point, or are we just in stasis and that's okay? No, you're you're always, you can always find me on Forbes, but uh, please just you know, 
Pledge a buck at Patreon for Twim. Look at that. Look at that. And I will give I will give twenty cents of it to Devin. <laughs> what do you think of that, people? <laughs> well, I'd like to thank good old Devin Thorpe for taking some time out of his his busy schedule to hang out with me. It's very nice of you, Devin. It's always great to have you here in the hot seat. Pleasure's all mine. Thank well, you. Well, thank you very it's much. And uh, appreciate all of you tuning in. Seriously, you make it possible. Thank you for being our audience and for being there for us. And we hope you have a terrific week. Until we meet again, be well, be holy, and be happy. Thank you.